Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Todd Solzinger. Todd is the president at Blue Elm Investments, and Blue Elm works to develop safe, secure, and recession-proof investments, allowing them to build long-term sustainable cash flow through the acquisition of mobile home parks across the U.S. Todd also acts as a consultant with CCI Investments, helping buyers acquire and improve mobile home parks. Todd, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Andrew. I'm really looking forward to our talk. Awesome. Uh, can you please start out by telling our listeners a little about your background and, and how you got into manufactured housing? Absolutely. I, I spent most of my career working in Silicon Valley uh, in finance roles for a variety of different startups, medical device companies, software, hardware companies, and started investing in real estate, actually in the Dallas-Fort Worth market. I'm based in Northern California and started buying houses in, in that area with the idea of building up, uh, you know, buying multiple houses, creating passive cash flow. And, you know, after doing that for a few years, I realized it was going to take a long time. And a lot of homes actually, you know, get towards that goal of replacing my W-2 income with, uh, you know, with income from real estate. And at that same time, I started going to some of the real estate guys syndication events and just found out about this idea of group investments of, of you know, pooling people's resources together to go out and buy bigger properties that they would otherwise and decided I want to start a business around real estate syndications. And then over a couple of years, looking at a lot of different asset classes, looking at apartments and self-storage and groups of single family homes, I ended up zeroing in on mobile home parks. That's fantastic. And, and how long have you actively owned mobile home parks? Uh, I bought my first parks uh, just a little over a year ago with a, oh, a couple parks that I acquired in Georgia. Fantastic. That's awesome. What is the hardest part about this business in your eyes? The hardest part, I think the hardest part is, is management. It's, you know, running a mobile home park is different than just, uh, you know, managing a single family home or a group of single family homes or an apartment. There's just lots of moving pieces. You know, the tenant base can be a little bit different. Uh, you know, kind of having this, the, you know, the um, having on-site managers or a maintenance person on staff and managing those remotely, I think is, is, is a challenge. Totally. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And we have a an episode all about that. And, you know, I applaud you for managing your parks fully remotely as, as we do. How often do you visit your, your parks or how often do you think it's necessary? Well, I, I wish I could visit them more often than I do. You know, again, I'm based in California and the parks I have are in Georgia and now Tennessee. And I, I haven't been out there since the pandemic. So uh, I, oh, wow. I need to get out there. And it's, uh, you know, I haven't made the effort to fly out there. I consider driving out and really making it, uh, you know, a several week trip. And I, I may yeah. end up doing that uh, later this year, early next year. Um, but I haven't been able to get out there as often as I uh, wanted to after I I acquired these parks, uh, but we've replaced that with doing a lot of video calls. I actually had one yesterday with uh, our on-site manager, and we just 
went through the entire park and it probably took us a couple hours just to have her on FaceTime going through, going into a lot of the homes, really, you know, scanning around uh, the, the park. So that's been really, you know, what we can, the only thing we can do is really to replace it with, with some good video calls. Totally. Yeah. So a lot of our audiences are passive investors that have invested in multifamily, self storage and other asset classes. You know, what would you say are the most important things that passive investors need to look out for when investing in, in this asset class of mobile home parks? You know, what, what are those big ticket things that they need to need to look out for? Um, well, I think, uh, you know, in any kind of syndication, I think it's, you know, understanding, you know, starting to understand the business itself, you know, you know, for a lot of people, it's the first step of do I want to invest in real estate? Yes, I do. And then it's, you know, what kind of asset classes uh, make sense to them in terms of how they want to diversify. Uh, and then, you know, after that, it's really looking at the operator's experience. And while I'm relatively new to the mobile home park business, I had hired uh, CCI, the company I'm actually working for now as a consultant, I had hired them to help me with the due diligence and do an on-site visit uh, and help with negotiations and creating a turnaround plan. So having somebody who's experienced in the business uh, is important. Uh, and then I would just say, if you know if somebody had experience in apartment investing, for example, just getting used to some of the terminology about lot rents and home rents and how utilities work uh, and some of the other questions that might not come up in an apartment. Uh, maybe it's related to you know the sewer system or the water the water system and whether it's on city utilities or private utilities. So I think the, those are some of the things I think I would ask about. Just a, you know a few things that mobile home parks, how they're different than uh, an apartment complex or a single family home. Yeah. Yeah, totally. To piggyback on that, you know, what, what are some of the value add components that you've implemented uh, in your mobile home parks? And maybe you could go into kind of the micro details on those because, you know, the value add mobile home, the value add components in mobile home parks are a lot different. You know, I wouldn't say completely different, but, you know, somewhat different with, with more involvement, you know, with, with infill and things like that compared to other asset classes like self storage or, uh, you know, apartments where you're, you're more so kind of turning a unit. Can you elaborate on some of the value add that you've implemented and, and, you know, what was easier or harder and, you know, kind of how those went and what your budgets were? Sure. Uh, well, one of the first things, we, when we bought the parks in Georgia, the owner had owned them for about 17, 18 years and had not done a lot of the park, hadn't you know, increased rents, you know, in about 15 years and oh, wow. was it was only accepting cash from his, his tenants. <laughs> so probably wasn't reporting at all. Um, and, you know, would let people pay late if they, if they wanted to, because again, he was not reporting all of his income. So it wasn't that big a deal to him. Um, and so, but that also caused the park to just kind of start to decline a little bit in terms of the way it looked and, and the tenant base. So one of the uh, first things that we did is we put back in a garbage can, right? I mean, that, that might not seem like a big deal, but at some point in time, the owner decided, there's too many other people in the neighborhood that are just dumping stuff there. So I'm just going to take it out. So that actually caused the residents to have to take their garbage manually to the dump. So you've got, oh, wow. um, it, there were two parks about a mile from each other. So this one park, there's about 50 spaces and they were having to take their own garbage to the dump. So we brought in a garbage 
uh, you know, get brought into a, a, a garbage dump where they can, or a, a big trash can where they can put their garbage. A lot of the mailboxes, there were probably about half of the mailboxes, it was one of those big metal clusters with doors on them, and about half of the doors were broken. So half of the residents could pick mm. up their mail in the park. The other half had to go to the post office to pick it up. So we installed a new bank of mailboxes just so they can, what seems like a natural thing, they should be able to have mail delivered close to where they live. Um, so those, those were a couple things that we tried to implement right away just to make, you know, make it a little bit, make life a little bit nicer for the people living in the park. We did have a few vacant lots and we ended up buying some used refurbished homes. So there's a, there was a guy that we found. I mean, I don't know if some people probably aren't aware that in the same way that there's um, stick-built house flippers, there's also mobile home flippers where, you know, somebody might buy a home for, you know, maybe as low as free to get it off somebody's lot or maybe pay a few thousand dollars for it. They'll re, uh, rehab it and then sell it to somebody like me. So we bought a couple uh, 16 by 80 uh, three-bedroom, two-bath homes that were built in the late 90s and just bought them fully refurbished for about $20,000 all in and slotted those into a couple of spaces in the park and rented those out. So that's an, another, I guess, an example of bringing in uh, a little bit newer homes that are, you know, they're already remodeled and ready to go and place them there for our residents. Wonderful. And I think you mentioned something that I think we should touch on because you, from our previous conversation, you, uh, if, catch, tell me if I'm wrong, but you prefer the park owned home model with, with rentals. Isn't that right? That's right. Right. I do. Uh, and like the park in Georgia, it's about, uh, I'd say about 80% park owned, about 20% tenant owned homes. Okay. And, uh, uh, you know, I like that model just uh, mostly because of the income, you know, in, in the markets we're in, the lot rents will be between 150 to $200, whereas you can rent a home in that market for between 450 and 600. So that spread of $300 to $400 between the lot rent and the home rent more than covers the cost of maintenance and vacancy. <laughs> the downside to that is there is more maintenance. We have a on-site maintenance guy who's you know pretty active in the park on a regular basis taking care of, of tenant issues but we find so that is model, he like a is he like a full-time employee then that you have on staff or how do you treat how do you treat those um yeah so we give him uh we give him free rent for the home that he lives in and then uh, okay. above a certain amount of time we pay him an hourly rate um and he kind of does gotcha. a combination of light maintenance inside the homes if there's any kind of issues where tenants need light bulbs changed or sewer might be clogged and then he'll also do some light rehab uh if there's um uh, if a unit turns and you know perhaps you know new walls need to be put in maybe a new uh, floorboard needs to be put in. He can take care of uh, those kind of things as well. Yeah, I was talking to a big property manager, a residential property manager, and he was telling me that the ma they started like a maintenance side of their business. And he was saying that they've just had more complaints and, and more, you know, they've, they've gotten sued a couple times on the maintenance side of things because it's just, there's a lot of liability there. So have you guys had any issues like that? And, you know, is, is your guy like a you know does he have workers comp and that kind of stuff or is he more of an independent contractor uh yeah he's an independent contractor for us 
Um, okay. And well, actually, you know, we've had you know, kind of, I guess, the, I don't know if it's really the opposite, but the response has been really good because the previous owner was not investing a lot in the park and he wasn't charging people because he had increased the rent for a long time and it was charging gotcha. rents below market. They just kind of accepted that nobody would come and fix their house. Mm-hmm. We took over and they're like, oh my gosh, these guys are actually coming in here and fixing these things. Doing something, a, right? <laughs> when we put in a maintenance request. So, uh, yeah. so, so there's been you know, a positive That's great. impression of us since we've taken over. That's fantastic. And especially you being in California and these parks being all the way on the other side of the country, you know, is your onsite manager must be just a rock star. Yeah, yeah. We, we've had, like, again, really, I'd say really good luck having great people on site. And that's, I think, when I, you know, my experience in the business and what I learned beforehand in terms of some of the difficulty and challenges of running mobile home parks, it really comes down to finding a good manager that just kind of, yeah. you know, gets it, understands, works hard, you know, lets you know what's going on in the park. Um, and that's really can make or break the operation for sure. Totally. And how much, how much do you pay an on-site manager, you know, that, that does, cause I'm sure there's a little bit more involved with a park owned, you know, community versus a tenant owned community. Yes. So you probably have to pay a little bit more than the kind of standard, you know, $10 a lot. Right. Right, right, right. So we have the, between the two parks, there's 71 spaces and we pay 1500 a month. So yeah, a little more okay. than $20 a space. So part of that is because there's two parks about a mile apart, they do have to do a little driving back and forth. And because there's more activity from a, a maintenance standpoint from the homes that, uh, you know, they are more active in what's what's going on. Totally. And then are those employees or are those independent contractors as well for you guys? They're independent contractors as well. Okay. Gotcha. And we've and then, actually had the, the, and these are actually the, the maintenance uh, person lives on the park. Um, we've had two different kind of, I quote, onsite managers, but they actually live about 10 or 10 or 15 minutes away from the park. One of them used to live in the park and then she mm. moved out of the park kind of during the time we were uh, going through the acquisition. And she came to us and said, you know, I, I'm moving away to another house about 10, 15 minutes away, but I'd still like to manage the park. So she's considered our on-site manager, but she's this doesn't actually live on site, but close enough that, you know, she's there to go to the park on a regular basis, you know, show tenants homes, collect rent, mm-hmm. whatever else needs to be done uh, at the parks. That's great. What have you found to be like your expense ratio, you know, since you have majority park owned homes, you know, and I guess, you know, some of the industry, the tenant owned home expense ratios are 30 to 40% or so, you know, how much more is the, the park owned home expense ratio? Um, well, you know, the parks, the park is not yet stabilized. I would say we, we, we purchased the park in September of last year. We did have a, a dip in occupancy. A lot of it was just around actually, you know, people leaving because we were enforcing rules. So, mm-hmm. you know, we had to tell people, we gave people a couple months to, uh, when we took over to say, we're not going to accept cash anymore. You've got to pay with check or money order. You can't pay late. If you pay late, we're going to have to charge late fees. So that caused some turnover that you know, increased our expense ratio just because our, our revenue went down. So, yeah, so we haven't kind of gotten to that point yet. And then, and then kind of once we hit COVID, then we had some issues with not being able to evict tenants because the courts in Georgia closed in March, opened back up in July. And then there was a big backlog in the, in the court system. So we're still kind of making our way through that. So 
right now our expense yeah. ratio is kind of higher than I think it's going to be at, when it's more stabilized. More stable, sure. Back, occupancy back up to where it needs to be. Yeah. And how, how have your, your parks performed during COVID? You know, we've had some similar issues, especially in Illinois, where we're still not able to evict some, some residents that, that haven't paid. And, you know, how have, how have yours performed? Uh, well, we've had, I'd say in terms of the collections, we've had a, a mix of people that, you know, really were affected by COVID, may have lost their job and came to us and let us know about it. And we've been, been able to work out payment plans or try to help them find if there's any way to to get some assistance you know, we, uh, you know yeah. we just encourage them to figure out uh, you know can they look into what kind of unemployment benefits there might be i know one of our residents uh, went to their church and their church had been trying to raise money for people in their congregation who were affected and and had trouble paying rent then we had another group of people that were just taking advantage of the situation you know they may have lost their job they may not have they really couldn't uh, they couldn't uh, give us proof or chose not to. So they've just decided to string things out. And some of those people, now the courts are back open. We've, we've started the eviction process for them. A couple of those people, once that happened, once their uh, uh, case hit the eviction courts, then they said, okay, I'm ready to move out now. So it's not going to go into their, against their record, but they still uh, stayed at the park for four or five months without paying rent. So that's been, that, that's been a, a you know challenge for sure. And um, it's, uh, you know, I guess an unexpected part of this recession, re- recession, you always, I think it's commonly talked about that mobile home parks are recession resistant. Uh, and I think that's really true in a typical recession where, uh, you know, people might be kind of moving down the uh, the scale in terms of the homes they're living in. This recession has been kind of flipped some of that on its ear because the, a lot of people who lost jobs were in the you know, in a, lot, in a lot of those lower wage brackets that might have been in service industries, restaurant type jobs that really suffered once the pandemic hit. Yeah, we we uh, we were pretty fortunate. I think it's area specific too. you know, dependent upon the, you know, the local employers and things like that, because a lot of our parks fared fairly well and, and still continue to do so. I think when the unemployment, the federal unemployment ran out, you know, we saw a little bit of a dip there. But you know, I, I still see, you know, collections percentage wise above 95% across the, the portfolio. Have you guys seen something similar? Is it still holding up, you know, above 90%? Um, I would say it's been probably the last couple of months, probably between 85 and 90. Okay. Yeah. All right. Still, still fairly well, you know, overall. Tell me this, Todd, what does the perfect mobile home park look like to you? And where is it located? You know, is it all park owned homes? You know, is it, is it on public utilities or private? You know, what does that perfect park look like? Uh, yeah, I think for a perfect park from an acquisition standpoint would be something that, um, you know, is priced well, which would often mean there's, there's some value add to it. So I think some place that's in uh, a place where there's a strong economy, I mean, that's absolutely the like the first thing that I look at when I've looked at any park, parks to acquire is what's the local market look like? And that's, you know, the example in Georgia, the, the town that uh, these parks are in is not, it's not a huge city. It's about 60,000 people and that falls below the 100,000 population uh, mark that a lot of people in the industry talk about. But when you dig the, the next level down, you find out, oh, there's three universities in town. There's a variety of different manufacturers. There's a Lowe's and a Walmart. So there's some other economic activity 
that made it attractive. So that's really the the first thing that I would look to in, in terms of um, trying to find what I think would be an ideal park. Because it's, I think I found this out kind of early on in my uh, single family home investing is it's one thing if you bought a turnkey property with a tenant in there, but you want to make sure that if that tenant ever leaves, that there's enough uh, tenants in the in the pool to to backfill that person. So that, I think that that's key. I think finding something that's you know a park that's at least fifty spaces, um, preferably larger, where you can afford to have uh, those economies of scale to have an on-site manager maintenance person. Ideally, it'd be great to have somebody that could actually function and handle both of those roles. Uh, that, that's not always the easiest to find. And then, uh, yeah, I, I think I think I probably um, I think ideally it'd be f- nice to find a, a place with a combination of of park owned and tenant owned. I think uh, you know having there there are the benefits to parks with tenant owned homes in terms of length of stay, pride of ownership, those kind of things. I think having that mix in a park uh, would be ideal as well. That's a that's a good point, and you know I think the market research that you do is 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 very important. You know you can change a lot about a specific mobile home park, but mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to change the market and the jobs available, right? So that's that's very uh, very valuable information. Yeah, uh, when, and I look too, just trying to find markets that there wasn't just a, a single employer. There's a lot of parks mm-hmm. I looked at that seemed good, but there was one manufacturer or perhaps a military base that made me nervous that if, you know, something happened one, one way or the other to one of those, that it would really affect the town. Um, yep. So to find some place where there's that diversity of employment, I think is really important. Yeah, no, I, I agree entirely. What do you see as your turnover on the park owned homes? You know, like what's your, I know, I know it's, it's been fairly new for you. You've, you've just owned for over a year, but you know, what would you say, is your, your kind of releasing rate, you know, where you're able to, to get them to sign on for another year or how, how has that been for you guys? Uh, well, all of the residents that are currently in the park are on month-to-month leases or month-to-month rental agreements. Uh, and as I mentioned, when we first took over the park, we did have a fair amount of turnover again, where people were just it may have been living there for four or five years. We're used to doing things a certain way and all of a sudden, all of a sudden couldn't do it that way. So I think from the tenants that we've placed since, uh, you know, maybe three or four months after taking over, uh, I, you know, the, the majority of those people are, are still around and are, are, are good paying tenants. So yeah, so I'm not sure if that answered your question or not in terms of yeah, no, that's, that's great. Yeah, it's still probably probably new, you know, with the, t- the initial turnover, because I think every park kind of has that when you have a new, new rules and things like that. Questions about your deals specifically, do you invest your own money in your deals? And then do you also personally sign recourse on the deals that you raise money for? Yes. So the, um, the parks in Georgia, we were able to get seller financing for, which was, um, oh, yeah, nice. which made the deal re- really strong. Um, the seller said, absolutely. He did not want to do seller financing. It wasn't part of the deal. You know, just wanted his cash out and wanted to be done. But because he was only accepting cash and didn't have the best records, he had five mobile home parks and he was selling these two, but all five were in one LLC. So trying to carve out tax returns to see the, you know, really dig into numbers was, was not easy. So we told him through that process, as we were also talking to banks, <laughs> looking into financing that might be difficult to finance and, uh, and over time convinced him to carry back a note. So it was great. So we got um, uh, an initial four year interest only term that we can extend to eight years 
Um, oh, great. You know, pretty competitive interest rate. Um, yeah. And then that's, but that was a, a, you know, loan that's, you know, personal recourse. So in the syndications I put together, um, if necessary, I'll, I'll, I'll sign them alone. And I do absolutely invest side by side with my investors for the deals I put together. That's great. Uh, the Todd second deal in, in, in uh, Tennessee was a, a smaller loan um, through okay. a hard money lender, but same thing. It was, uh, you know, uh, uh, recourse to me. Gotcha. And did you syndicate both of those deals, the I Georgia did, yes. and the? Okay. I did. The, 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 yes. uh, Georgia was probably more typical where I found the park, got it under contract, went out and raised money and, uh, and closed on the park. The one in Tennessee, I had to close quickly on it just in terms of the way I bought it. And I had it wholesaled from somebody. So I actually bought it myself, got it under control, and then went out uh, after that and raised money to, um, uh, to fund the improvements. Wow. That's, that's, uh, it takes some courage to do that. That's, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's impressive. Well, you know, um, in, in concept, again, it seemed great. I mean, I'm just going to buy this thing and roll it out and, uh, into a syndication. And I actually launched the webinar for that syndication about three or four days before the shutdown happened here in California. Oh my goodness. So not the best time to go out and, you know, put a deal out there to raise money for, but you know, it was, you know I was able to get it done, brought in a great group of investors and, there's a lot of people that that, in, that are interested and like investing in the mobile home park space just because it's, you know, all the things we like about it, the, you know, the huge need for affordable housing and recession resistancy and the returns. Totally. So tell me about that a little bit. How How is your general partner, limited partner, you know, split set up and, uh, you know, what are the typical expected returns on a deal? The returns for the Georgia Park, um, you know, that was my first syndication. So I, I leaned that one more heavily towards the investors than, um, than to myself. So I gave a 9% preferred return. And I had, you know, I remember uh, hearing from Ken McElroy, who's a big apartment investor, you, you, may, you may know. And he said when he was doing a lot of his first couple deals, he knew that he was going to be giving the investors, uh, you know, a bigger share of the pie in order to, you know, gain credibility and, and gain experience. So that's kind of the way I structured these, these first couple of deals was to, you know, make sure my investors get taken care of first. And most of my compensation is going to be towards the back end when we end up selling the parks. That's great. Yeah, that's how ours are done as well. And I think that's just, you know, how you have to do it. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I think that, you know, investors like that, they, um, you know, even though, you know, preferred returns, not guaranteed, but just the fact sure. that they know that, you know, if this guy says he's going to give me a 9%, he must think it's going to do better than that. And he's going to do everything he can to make sure the returns are higher than that, or he's not going to get paid. So I think yeah. that gives investors comfort. Totally. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and then what's, what's your end game goal? You know, what, where are you going to be at in 10 years? And then do you have an exit strategy, you know, even for, for after that point? Um, well, I, I, I want to put together some more syndications. I mean, it's, I, I love looking at deals. I love, I love the business. I love working with investors. Um, I think, uh, you know, I invested in uh, a syndication myself before I put one together with that idea of, Hey, I want to invest one myself, learn how it works. And I actually didn't have the best experience through that, uh, through that deal, which uh, taught me a lot about how I wanted to put together my syndications myself and, and also how I'd want to communicate to investors. So I want to continue to do that because I think there's a huge app appetite for people who want to invest in real estate, but don't know how they want to diversify. 
outside of the typical Wall Street uh, Wall Street investments. So, uh, so I, I, I kind of would picture next year I'll put together you know at least one deal, and then on the consulting side, that's something I started uh, working on. I guess it's been about four or five months ago now. And that's been really great to kind of put my experience as uh, somebody who's, you know, has, has purchased and is now running mobile home parks to help new investors come in and uh, try to match them with the parks that make sense for them. So I think I'll, you know, continue to do both of those. And I like that because then I can offer, if somebody just wants to invest passively and has $50,000 to invest, I can serve somebody from that side. But if they have a lot more money and they just want to buy a park directly, uh, then I can serve them as well on that side. Yeah, that's fantastic. So on the you know consulting side of things, because I know CCI, don't they do like uh, actual third-party management of communities? They do. They, they manage about, I think now it's about 90 parks or so across 15, 16 states. And initially, wow. they just started off as consultants, uh, you know, almost, um, they're not brokers, but they almost kind of... Um, uh, provide that function in terms of, uh, again, like finding parks and matching buyers and sellers. Through that process, they realized that, uh, especially because a lot of their buyers were uh, remote, many of them living in California, they realized they had to add on that property management as, um, uh, you know, as another offering that they could have. So they, yeah, so they, um, their primary business is consulting. They Their property management business is almost break even, but it's just a service that they provide for their clients. Gotcha. And in one of your syndication deals, you know, what type of fees are typical? You know, is there like an acquisition fee and, and what are you charged for property management? And maybe that's similar to what CCI charges. Maybe you could share if you know, you know, what they charge on, on their property management side of things. Yeah, well, their property management is, um, again, it's back. It, they, I, I don't think they're charging enough because, again, they were just kind of doing it as a service, but their business has grown now. But on the parks that I have, they're charging one park is 700 a month, one is 800 a month. Um, so it's probably from a percentage standpoint, lower than, you know, maybe a lot of typical apartment property managers um, uh, might charge for property management. But again, they kind of look at it like, hey, you know, these clients paid us a consulting fee up front. We're helping them with the turnaround process. And then we're at least, at least covering our costs from the uh, property management side, which is um, kind of, you know, includes managing the on-site manager, paying the bills, doing the mm-hmm. monthly reports, doing the, you know, the year-end financial statements. And then from my standpoint, yeah, when I put my deals together, they'll typically be an acquisition fee. Um, and then a, a quarterly asset management fee. Okay. And how much are those? Are those a percentage of gross or a percentage of um, the assets the, under management? Yeah. Again, for the two deals, a little bit different. Georgia was just a, a flat fee uh, that I that I charged that um, you know turned turned out to be a little bit less than maybe about two and a half percent is what the percentage turned out to be. Mm-hmm. With the Tennessee park, because I uh, bought the park myself and then put it into the syndication. I didn't charge any acquisition fee. I just had a, a markup from what I bought it for into the LLC. So that was structured a little bit differently. Um, gotcha. gotcha. The uh, quarterly asset management fee right now is um, uh, for the Tennessee park. There's nothing for the first year because the park's not cash flowing. Um, and then it's 4% of income after that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, those seem very fair. Well, do you have deals right now that you're you're working on that you maybe have under contract or, you know, looking to to, to take down and bring on partners for? 
Um, not right now. I've been looking at quite quite a few parks. That's the great thing about working with CCIs. I see a lot of deal flow coming across my desk. Um, I, I think I'm going to wait until next year to actually get something under contract and go out to raise money. I, I, I thought about that recently and then actually just thinking about kind of just what's happening now time-wise uh, where we are in the year. I just didn't feel like it would be the best time to get something under contract, try to go through due diligence, and then have all that happening as we're leading into the holidays. That just seemed like that it might not be the best time to do that and uh, probably still a little bit bitten from uh, launching this last uh, raise just as we ran, went into the pandemic. So, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm seeing quite a few deals out there, but I would imagine it'll probably be first quarter next year they'll actually try to get something under contract and go out and raise money. Gotcha. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Todd, for all of this valuable information. I appreciate you coming on the oh, show. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. I know you add a ton of value to your community out there and, uh, and also for just, you know, increasing awareness and, and making the bubble home park business um, better than it has been. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that, Todd. Uh, if our listeners would like to get a hold of you, uh, what's the best way for them to do so? Uh, they can do so at uh, my email is Todd, T-O-D-D at blueelminvestments.com and my website, uh, www.blueelminvestments.com. I did want to let you know, I would actually, this was a uh, co-author in a recently released book called um, The Success Habits of Super, Super Achievers. Um, and this has, um, it was put together by Kyle Wilson. It's got some great uh, authors in it, like um, Darren Hardy, Les Brown, Dennis Waitley, Brian Tracy, um, Phil Collin from Def Leppard, uh, uh, Todd Stottlemyre, an ex-major league baseball player, and 80 of us got together and have chapters in this book just talking about some of the things that we do to uh, make our make our lives successful. Uh, so if anybody wants to reach out, I can uh, get somebody a copy of that book. Awesome. Yeah, that's very cool. That's, that's an awesome offer, Todd. Uh, if you, if you like this show, please hit the subscribe button to get signed up to receive all of our future interviews with rock stars in the mobile home park space, just like Todd. Uh, that that's it for today. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Would you like to see mobile home park value add projects in progress? If so, follow us on Instagram at passive MHP investing for photos and awesome videos from our recent mobile home park acquisitions. Once again, that's at Passive MHP Investing on Instagram. See you there.